You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and a very happy new year. With this episode, we are now officially past the halfway mark for season two. It's been such an exciting journey producing this podcast. In less than a year since I released the very first episode, we've had over 3,000 downloads. So thank you so much for supporting it and for listening. Would you do me a favor? Please share this episode or your favorite episode with just one other person. This will help us continue to grow. And as we work towards the third season, it really helps get the word out about the podcast. On the show today, we have Stuart Rasmussen. Stuart is a friend, a technologist, and someone who's extremely knowledgeable about the Australian legal market. He's previously worked for the likes of Phoenix Business Solutions in the UK and Asia-Pac, served as the head of client services, APAC for HiQ, and most recently was the director of legal technology for KPMG Australia. When we recorded this episode back in 2019, he was still at KPMG, and I'll be remiss if I didn't mention that all views that he shares are his own and not those of his employers. On the episode today, we talk all things legal from the changing landscape of the Australian legal tech market, which is interesting bearing in mind their proximity to other large markets, how cultures sometimes produce unique use cases the advantages of being the first mover, or lack thereof in some instances within the legal profession, extendability of products through the use of APIs and such, and the need for consolidation within the the productized version of the legal market, and so much more. We actually pack quite a lot in a small amount of time. Just a quick note to say that Stu recorded this on a particularly busy afternoon, so the audio on his side is a little bit unclear uh, at times with some background noise. Please bear with it. The content is absolutely worth it. Without further ado, on to today's episode. episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Rasmussen. Stuart is the Director of Legal Technology at KPMG. Before that, he was the Head of Client Services for Asia Pacific for HiQ. He joins us today from sunny Sydney, which I'm actually very jealous of as I'm sitting in the Brisbane Hall Chicago. <laughs> Stuart, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. And I suppose the best way to start would be deconstructing your LinkedIn profile. One of the things you mentioned there is that you accidentally got into legal tech. So tell us how that happened. What's your story to get to where you are now? Yeah, cool. Well, it depends how far back I go, but basically I was a free-spirited traveler and happened to meet a a lady who is now my wife and mother of my daughter, and she happened to be from England. So we, we moved to England and perfect timing as it was. We landed in England right on the global financial crisis. So the work was pretty hard to come by. So I couldn't be picky. So 
I happen to meet a company called Phoenix Business Solutions, who are a London-based legal technology. I didn't really sort of realize or join the dots at the time, but a legal technology consultancy business that does a lot of things. And I'll get into, I guess we'll talk about this later, but they had traditionally done what law firms had traditionally considered legal technology, which was standard things like document management and add a few of those sort of boring things, which we now consider you know, part of our day-to-day jobs. And yeah, basically... Kind of met these guys, really, really sort of cool group of fellas running a fairly small business at the time. They're now, you know, they've done a, a, sort of a great job growing, but at the time, I think there were about sort of 25 people or so. So I made the most of the interview, hadn't even sort of, you know, heard the word law firm before this and uh, got the job and, and yeah, the rest is sort of history. Anyway, I guess we relocated to Sydney and as luck would have it, Phoenix just opened up an office in Sydney to service the APAC market. So I approached the director of the league of Phoenix down here and said, hey, I, you know, I expressed six months ago my interest in getting into sales. What do you reckon the chances are here? And yeah, there was a role. They, were, they needed someone from the sales side of things. I'd never done it before in my life and uh, ended up having an additional almost three years of career with Phoenix here in their Sydney office. Um, then had three years with IQ running pretty much, you know, their sales and, and customer success and at a time, it was actually only me. So I even did the support desk tickets and, and all sorts of things. I had Telstra bills and, and, and everything in between. And then, yeah, lucky enough to sort of have the opportunity to grow the business down here for them. But like you in my time there. And yeah, for three years, I did that before I decided that there was a next, uh, watch, watch, yeah. my career needed another challenge. One way or another, sort of started talking with, with KPNG. But that's, that's how I got to where I am. Wow. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And what was the... So what did you learn running? And I, I remember meeting you in detail the first time in Australia in Sydney mm-hmm. at one of the events where you told me the same thing that when you joined HiQ in Australia, you were kind of doing a bit of everything, which mm-hmm. sounds like a lot of work, but it clearly has massive benefits as well in that you get to learn you know, all, all aspects of the business inside out and allows you to get a team, especially when you have that autonomy that you want that can allow you to grow quickly. So what was that like? Yeah, cool. I think, you know, people hire people and, and I, I met with you know, a number of the people that are, I guess, Stuart Starr and a few others, their product director and so on in, in London. You know, and I guess there was a good personality fit. And, you know, I don't know, anyone that's met me, if you've ever seen me in a suit, count yourself as lucky because I, I rarely wear a suit. I <laughs> wear a suit at KPMG. And I, I just, it's just a bit my personality. So I think that's why I was, I was right for it. Look, an amazing opportunity, super blessed because basically it's like running a startup without the financial risk of a startup. Yeah. So, you know, if anybody ever had the opportunity to do what I did, I would say no, all, both hands, both feet, just jump, just go for it because, you know, those, those opportunities don't come up too often. So I basically learned almost how to run a startup in Australia from a, from a sense of sort of having to do everything without having any of the financial burdens and stress that I get it you know, finance team back in the UK that did all that sort of stuff for it. So everything but that is what I experienced down here in Oz and, and it was fantastic. So I guess that's enough of that. But in terms of why it was working, I've sort of already touched on it really. I think Australia, and it's interesting, I've sort of got some stories about this. Australia, from a technology perspective, is either really far behind or actually ahead. And you hear a lot of this in New Zealand as well. It's not too dissimilar in New Zealand. You know, we've got a lot of number of cool startups coming out of the NZ market as well. From a legal perspective, Australia seems to be, and I think this was driven by competition because we don't have the market size of the US and we don't have the market size of the UK and so on. So we have to be more competitive. So we look for 
look at smaller things. We look for those one percenters, those little things that are going to give us the edge, that are going to allow us to sort of have six months of head start or advantage over our competitors. In bigger markets, you, you don't have to be, so you become a little bit more complacent. And when there's not as much competition, you're not driven to innovate. You know, necessity is the mother, mother of all invention. So it's sort of, that's the anecdote that was, that was Australia from a legal tech perspective. So are you finding that basically the same or similar products in two different markets, if you take the UK and Australia, the Australians will find sometimes different use cases? Because, I mean, in my experience, what I found with the Australian market, I think your anecdote earlier is yeah, spot on because... In some cases, it seems really far ahead. There's some wonderful use cases that you can find of technology. The the adoption levels and everything is very, very high. But there's some instances where the the Australian legal market is not even looking at certain technology. And it may be limited uses. And you see that across markets. If you look at the US compared to the UK, for example, and something like metadata cleaning is different. What do you think are some of the things that are coming up now that the Australian market specifically is reacting well to? So, you know, back uh, you know a couple of years ago, it, was, it seemed like it was cloud solutions. What about now? What's hot now? It is interesting. I mean, look, yeah, you've always got differences in markets. You know, often, <laughs> often in Australia, it, it, this is happening globally, you know, the emergence of reg tech, you know, regulatory compliance technology. And and I think you're seeing a convergence of legal tech and regulatory tech because lawyers play in the regulatory compliance space quite heavily. And, and, and I think technology that specifically caters to red tech is, is, is only, you know, a hop, skip and a jump from catering to legal tech and often they're exactly the same products. So I think in Australia, things like metadata cleaning, right? Like uh, we're going through a Royal Commission in Australia at the moment for terms of raking it in because of this. And actually, it's having the adverse effect. They're getting so much money now doing standard work that they're not having to look for that edge. So they're actually mm-hmm. sort of taking it, the, the foot off the pedal from an innovation perspective. They're saying, well, if we make so much money just reviewing documents with this Royal Commission, let's, let's talk about legal tech, you know, innovation, things that are going to sort of you know, push the envelope next year. But traditionally, those regulatory things off the back of a Royal Commission will come a bunch of regulatory advice, right? And those things will be enforced by law. So law firms will have to be the enforcers of it or at least help the clients you know, stay within the bounds of that, those that, sort of frameworks. So there'll be opportunity that comes out of that. Things like metadata cleaning is an example of that. You know, until you get, you know, until you have to or until you get in trouble from not, you know, sending out some sensitive data attached to it, you don't need it. So I think in Australia, yeah, the Royal Commission will have a real influence over where we not necessarily what products get developed, but the rate of adoption and perhaps how existing products get utilised. So, you know, and of course there will be some sort of smaller startups that come out off the back of regulatory, but they'll probably traditionally not focus on regulatory compliance within the legal industry. I think um, some existing startups and so that will, will really benefit a lot out of, out of the shift of focus that law firms are going to sort of apply to their products. So I don't know whether I could sort of pinpoint what exactly is going to sort of see the next the next sort of major, major growth, you know, every year it seems in legal, we have a, you know, a, a hype phase of something, you know, and I think, I don't think it's just legal, but we're certainly seeing it in legal at the moment, dashboards, you know, like visualisation of data is becoming massive. You know, I think financial and, and you know, within KKG, I get the ability to sort of see what's happening across other things around the, the tax space and all that sort of stuff. And, and of course, numbers lend themselves really well to graphs and visualizations and dashboards, but they've been doing it for quite a while. Whereas legal, from that perspective, you know, data insights is showing it. I think we're seeing a real sort of resurgence of that, almost to the point where it's becoming stupid. I've seen some startups that have 
too many visualization points <laughs> just because they feel like they need to have them in the product right. in order to sell it. So I think we're starting to get to the point in legal where maybe some of the systems are becoming more mature. Uh, so the data is there. We've now got quite a lot of historic data as if you were you know, you've been doing it for two or three or four years. You've got a lot of historic data. But you're now starting to say, well, how can we use this from an intelligence insights perspective? So I think we're going to sort of see products that allow us to do that becoming quite important. And that'll be led by not just sort of industry trends, client demands, and all that sort of stuff, which the legal industry tends to sort of be influenced by, but actually by the by proxy of the fact that this legal tech is seeing so many startups and, and, and new companies and companies that are pivoting into legal, whereas previously they were focused on on infrastructure and, and, and you know really sort of non-complementary environments, but they're seeing the opportunity in legal and they're pivoting. So we're becoming more and more and more fragmented. You know, it's mm. becoming harder. People like, uh, my job is becoming harder because I need, there's so many things that I need to be on top of from that perspective and, and understanding how they interact and work and integrate and complement and overlap and all those sorts of things is becoming a really difficult job. So I don't envy the businesses that can't afford to have dedicated you know, legal technologists on their team because how you remain aware and ahead, you know, comfortable with that changing landscape. Yeah, anyone, I, I, guess. I think you're right. I think yeah, there, but, there is insurgence of all of these businesses that are now migrating into legal and whether it's from reg tech or fintech or some other tech uh, sector, just because there's now increasing money, firms are becoming a bit more responsive to adopting technology and now looking yeah. at technology more seriously. And you're getting to that point where you are getting a lot of startups. And it's quite interesting, the contrast, you know, you mentioned when you first joined Phoenix in London, there were almost no startups coming up now. And now, there's hundreds of them. And that's a good thing because you do need that competition, but you also need to get to a point where you start seeing consolidation in various sectors and certainly market segments where you can't have 30 different companies offering the same type of product, right? They need to consolidate. So you can have two or three and, and that takes time and that takes something from the, the purchaser, the firms in this case, or, or in-house to actually say that we want this. This is actually a problem rather than this looks like cool, sexy tech. Let's get this. That's right. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly happening with data data visualization at this point. And it, yeah. it is, right? Because that, that, that's kind of what brings it together, all, the, all of that sort of disparate data and information sitting in, in, in information silos. The, the logical way, the, or not the only way, but the logical way is to sort of, you know, use these integration layers and bring them together and, and visualize it, you know, so it makes sense. Now, it's, Companies are going to have more than one of those products, so they're going to end up creating information silos for themselves. Um, and I think you know one of the ways to do that is for companies to not become these walled gardens and actually start yeah. to integrate with complementary but not directly competitive solutions. Just because you know, it makes life easier for technologists as well as for firms to say, okay, look, we already have X, Y, and Z. We want to expand our offering. We want to be able to do this. This is definitely out of scope of the current providers we have, but what can we get that works well with this or that we can make to work well with this? And I think we're moving into this world of where consumer technology already is, where you get expandable APIs, you get, you know, you get all of the different integration points that people can is that want to do that. It's not for everyone for sure. But at least you give people the option to make the most of something they've invested time and money into already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of talk about that consumer experience. It's so part of our daily lives now. How, how annoying is it? Like my, my wife uses a product with you know, obviously all her families in the UK. 
and we take a lot of photos of our child, but we, we decided that we don't want to put our photos of our child up on sort of major social media sites right. like Facebook and, and so on. So we, we ended up looking for a solution. There was a little company, actually an Aussie company, so, you know, plug for these guys, but a company called Tiny Beans, they've, they've done amazing, which really gives you a really sort of slimmed down version of something like Google Photos or whatever it is, but sharing to us can be different. Now, I install that app on my phone and I have my standard photos app and those photos get saved to my standard iPhone photo um, album. Now, if I can't go into my photo album and click share via Tiny Beans, mm. to me, that's, that's so frustrating, right? Like, <laughs> oh, what do you mean? I can't, and why, isn't, why aren't these two products integrated and all that? So we expect that now. And yeah, I, I think from a, you know, you always can look at the consumer and, and sort of take a bit of a holistic yeah, yeah, yeah. You can always look at the consumer experiences and push forward five or six or ten years and then understand that it is going to influence our, our business world. You know, I, I, I used to get, just by proxy of, of sort of the types of conversations I was having with IQ, I used to get a lot of law firms asking me, do you integrate with this or can I introduce you to this, this company? And, you know, property companies wanted me to go and talk to their property you know, portfolio management products and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and the answers were becoming increasingly easier just by the fact that there's a, this technology conversation here, which we won't go into, but, you know, we're now starting to build our products on, you know, I, I guess, more flexible sort of code bases with, with RESTful APIs and, and we're becoming a lot more efficient with how we integrate and make those calls and, and things between products. And there's becoming a bit of a standardization across that. So you're no longer kind of fitting square pegs in round holes and, and you know, needing super specialists to do it. So that's great. The technology itself is becoming easy to integrate. But there was these, and, and I'm slightly seeing it, a shift in the mentality of vendors to work with this, you know, not, not look at themselves as competitors. And that still has to change more. I, th- I think that really does have to change more. There's still a bit of an attitude between vendors of, oh, well, if they want to integrate with me, they can do it, but I'm not going to do it. And I, and I think, you know, and, and best intentions laid, sometimes they'll get together at Ilsa or in, in the US or whatever it is, and yeah. they'll have this big sort of chin wag. Yeah, we should totally integrate, but then no one will make the first step and make the effort and, and invest the time and money in doing it. I think there needs to be a change that can be driven by clients, but you can almost be forced by clients, you know, like once, certainly the big top tiers. Um, you guys, some of those guys have a massive, you know, they're lucky to be able to sort of say, hey, you know, I invest a lot of money in you and I invest a lot of money in you. And if you both don't play nice, <laughs> you know, then we're, then we're not going to play together at all sort of thing. And I think, you know, that needs to happen probably a little bit more, to be honest. And, and that will sort of drive the requirement in front of the law firms, sorry, the legal tech vendors to sort of do it if it's been driven by their clients. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And I think it's it's starting to happen. It just needs to accelerate. And I think... Yeah, you, you always get a mix of vendors and some of them have gone back decades <laughs> or more. So it's that hard did. to with yeah. mindsets, right? But it is starting to happen. It's, and then that's the same thing for law, law firms as well. And I suppose that's probably a good point to pivot to. As you've been someone who's sold into law firms and, and sort of in-house legal, and now you're kind of in and the other side of the table, so to speak, what do you think is the difference? Do you think there's a bigger shift in the tech-related focus when it comes to in-house legal versus law firm? Or do you think it's something that's happening across the board as well? Well, mate, in-house legal tech right now is like going gangbusters. <laughs> you know, and and I think it's going to introduce a really interesting paradigm between, you know, commercial law firms and in-house legal teams because traditionally, you know, I, I guess the power was, was with, with, with the traditional law firms and, you know, new Coca-Cola Amtool can, can log into my portal and Coca-Cola Amtool didn't have a choice. And now they're going, well, no, you know, fuck it up. Like, um, I deal with 10 law firms, you're not the only one. And 
I think I'm sick of sort of using what you guys present to me because it's not always consistent and creates me bloody admin loads. I never know where my data is. I want my data. You work for me. You know, I'm giving you the work. You're doing it for me. So log into my thing and give me my data the way that I want it and work with the way I want it. You know, they can say that and they have been saying that for quite some time, but now they can start to enforce it because there's actually platform, you know, in place. You know, and things like Locadia, which is an Aussie startup down here, yeah, some cool startup, definitely. You know, looking and tackling the legal procurement process. Now, law firms don't necessarily like it, but I can tell you the in-house legal teams do to streamline their procurement process and their communication process and, and, and manage that. And that's one area where not all law firms want to jump on board, but if you want to work in Coca-Cola Rams, you're going to have to. So that's an example. And, and, you know, there's other ones coming out tackling the e-billing solution. And Thomson Reuters have been doing it for a while with Legal Tracker, but there's a new breed of companies coming out. I've seen one in Germany called BusyLab, and, and there's another one, I think, they're Irish-based, Bright Flag, and there's a few others out there tackling specifically the e-billing solution and actually connecting the dots between the conversation you and I were just having. Both of those companies are in talks with other platforms for managing you know, procurement and battle management and that for integration. So the new breed of technology companies get it. They know they need to sort of integrate and, and not create those sort of silos. And they're re- and, and that's quite refreshing to sort of see. So I think, yeah, the in-house legal tech is becoming overly catered for. It's a great time for them. You're going to see a bunch of sort of independent consultancy businesses coming out and, and also inter- you know, non, non, not so independent, you know, um, consultancy businesses within law firms. And we have one in KPMG um, to assist law firms, the in-house legal teams with this exact, you know, <laughs> opportunity slash challenge around it. what do I adopt, how do I adopt it, where do I start and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the, the, the shift has definitely sort of changed. And as a bunch, I think that's where we're seeing them. I'm seeing the most startups coming is actually focusing on the legal, the in-house legal tech. If I'm sort of reflecting as I talk, most of those startups focus towards the in-house function. Yeah, and I think beyond that as well, there's a shift in certainly law firms thinking a bit more about who their competitors are and you know what the competitive advantage is for them. I know there's plenty of big law firms, COO that certainly worry about the big fours in the UK. I think the US mm. is a little bit guarded at this point due to regulation and so on, but certainly mm. in Australia and the UK, there is a much more competitive environment. And that, that's a great thing because as companies generally move to offer a full service solution to say, look, we're already helping you with this, this, and this, why, why shouldn't we help you with your legal issues also, right? Or providing consultancy or whatever it might be. And I think it's easier in some ways, and I could be wrong, we'll see in a few minutes, for the big four to do this because they have the big amount of data, we talked about that earlier, on exactly what the client is looking for, what the history is. And it's easier for them to say, look, we already have the processes in place. We already, you know, you think about the approaches, the people, process, and technology. We already have the people in place. We have the process in place. Now we just need to get pivot the expertise a little bit and put technology in place. And then they can offer something of equal value and quality. Yep. Yep. And this is a prime example of when there is, there is not a first mover advantage necessarily. Mm. You know, like I think law firms have done the hard work for us, for me, right? They, they, they were the early adopters of the AI platform. Mm. They figured out what it was. They rode the hype and they came off the back of it and they went, oh, actually, it's sort of not what we hoped it would be. And, you know, we've got, you know, we're not looking at it as we've rose into glasses anymore. And, and I think they had to do it. I'd had to do it. And it was only the big team, big firms that had it because they had, you know, the bandwidth to do it and, and, and so on and so forth. But 
someone has to do it. So hats off to them. You know, there's always has to be an early adopter, otherwise you don't get anything. But you know, fortunately for me, you know, that water wave has sort of been ridden for sort of three or so years, and we're now coming in, and we can sort of look at that and, and learn from that, and say, well, you know, what is the reality versus the hype? Where is the most value coming from? You know, like I, I remember law firm is really, really keen at some stage to sort of introduce better time capture, time entry solutions. So if we can find a bit more time, we can fill a bit more time. So this is a no-brainer. The reality was, after a year or two of running those things, that the data showed actually it didn't actually help us become necessarily more profitable i guess we were sort of you know moving the money somewhere else or we were writing it off or actually the client which is because we found five more hours didn't need the client to pay for it you know and that and the, you know i guess the influx of alternative billing arrangements and things like that removed necessarily the direct correlation to time and billing so you know those guys that sort of went through that period spent a lot of money and time and effort on doing it and found out more but your slightly point is they've got an amazing amount of data now and, and they're able to sort of have be more set up for alternative pricing because they've got you know information about how profitable their matters were, how much time it took, and effort, and all that sort of stuff. What the turnarounds were in the traditional project length, and all that sort of stuff. So they're they're great. They've got the data there. But yeah, I, I think there's a big opportunity for anybody now entering it, and that's kind of like the threat, right? Is is that you know you don't necessarily now need to be a reputable. I guess I'm coming from a reputable brand with KPMG, but you know, if I were anybody and, I, and I'm sitting in my seat at KPMG, I think my the biggest threats are going to come from um, you know the, the smaller companies that don't necessarily have the brands that we necessarily align to legal traditionally. But I think consumers are becoming more comfortable, and consumers by consumers I mean in our legal teams and, and GCs and you know, heads of legal and so on, becoming more comfortable working with these alternative brands. And in fact, they can sometimes bring a really fresh approach to it, and you know, without any stigma or history and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I think overall, <laughs> it's. Look, there's no, there's, 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 there's no doubting the fact that I think last year there was over nearly a billion dollars of investment in legal tech, and if you look at the year before that, it was I think it was about six hundred thousand. And this year we've already started. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a two hundred million dollar investment in a legal tech company in the first, you know, and we're only in January still. Hmm. So what's this year going to bring? A billion dollars of investment last year. What the heck is this year going to bring? You know, we're starting to see the focus of bigger industry uh, institutional investments and so on and so forth. So that's just that that just proves that the market is is, is right. For yeah, and I'm conscious of your time, but I have just two 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 things to just actually ask your opinion on. So one is you mentioned the reality versus hype. What do you think? There certainly is so much hype around a lot of technology, and I think there's two approaches to this, right? Because I think the legal technology vendors have a responsibility to demystify the hype. And as do legal technologists for internal stakeholders, what do you think is the best approach and how to do that? Because it kills me every time I hear people talking about AI and yeah. what it means or, yeah. or you know, even cloud even now, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is a good approach here? What works for someone like you if a technology vendor is speaking to you? Thank you for asking that question because I sort of happened to think about something like this on, on my train ride in this morning. <laughs> I think if I can sort of answer it with a statement and then sort of go into the big help. I approach or we approach with KPMG. I think the challenge for legal technology and what creates hype is not necessarily misplaced hype. You know, technology companies build a solution and they have to build it to the best of the overall ability. And they have a utilitarian approach to building products, right? Unless you're building something like a, you know, a K2 with all the tools and you can build out whatever you want and the other logic, whatever it is. If you're building a product, you have to sort of take a sort of a, a section of the market and go, well, what is the market in general wants. I can't build a button for everything, right? I can't cater for every bespoke process and things like that. So they build it out. They then go out and sell their product because they believe that they've built something that caters for every in-house legal team or every law firm or whatever it is. 
starts to create hype. And I think people buy into that because it's not just place. You know, I, I see a product, like an AR product, and I go, yeah, you know, I get an AR demo, and, and it, this is how I, I would love the world to work. I think the challenge is, uh, reality is, when you go into that and you acquire these products and start playing with them and spending time and learning them, you realize that your processes don't necessarily fit what the technologist, you know, envisioned or, you know, you may be different from the other 80% of the market that is okay and that. But reality is every law firm is different. That we don't have, you know, I guess, processes that are universal. So technology is really hard to build in that scenario. Mm. You know, it's not like we're looking at the, the taxation system and we go, well, the taxation system is the taxation system. You can't really deviate from it, you know. It's, the edge becomes in how you interpret it and, and, you know, how much you know of it and how you can work within the, the, the framework, but it is a framework and we all have to play within it. Whereas in legal, we don't, but we all have our bespoke processes. We all have our bespoke relationships. We all have, you know, all that sort of stuff that we think works for us and, and, and so on and so forth. So when we adopt technology, we end up falling foul of that. So I think reality versus hype is, is actually kind of a twofold thing. I think technologists are doing the best they can hmm. to develop products. Otherwise, they're going to just end up in an in a endless cycle of development and they end up with a product that caters for everybody but nothing at the same time and they've overdeveloped and spent too much money and now it's become too big and too cumbersome and too complex. Whereas law firms need to become better at saying, you know, is there a is there a standardized approach? Is my bespoke process actually can a competitive edge or can we start to adopt a standard way of doing it between Allen's and Norton Rose and HSF and then so on and so forth? Can we all kind of just do this the same way? A company, another Aussie company, which started out here dealing with the deals process, you know, believes that there is a pretty standard way of doing a deal. However, go and talk to a deals lawyer at Norton Rose, go and talk to a deals lawyer at KPMG, and they'll tell you absolutely not. My way is the better way. So, yeah, I think that's, that's actually where the reality versus type phrase is created from in legal tech. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, that's really useful to understand. And, you know, it's one of those things that will take time and I suspect will never go away completely, but you kind of just move on to different things and there's different hype cycles and you, as you move on to the last one. And so the, the one, one of the last things I was curious about, and please excuse my ignorance here, at least what I've been told in the last four years of trying to work with Australian market is there is maybe a more of an advantage if a company is founded or certainly based in Australia and, you know, considering that Australia is such a, to me at least, a unique market separate from the rest of the world. Do you think that's true? And if so, do you think that's changing? Because I think, at least in my, in my time doing this, but I don't know if there's still this bias to, you know, we buy Australian local vendors versus global vendors. So, so you te- you, the question is, is, is the company, is it a technology company founded in Australia? Yeah, or if they have a huge presence in Australia, will they have yeah. a, a distinct advantage over, you know, a US-based company or a UK-based company? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Look, ooh, it's a yeah, really kind of interesting question, which I think, and I think the way we're consuming technology is changing, which is actually making it less strategic to be based in Australia. You know, I think we're becoming more and more comfortable dealing remotely and, and we're becoming, in the US and the UK, becoming better at, servicing Australian hours. So I, I, I think maybe, yeah, five years ago, I would have said, yeah, there is an advantage. There's actually, there's an advantage because there's a stigma attached to it. Right. I, if you've got an Aussie office, I'll work with you. You may, you know, it, but if you don't, oh, you know, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to reevaluate. I'm going to take a bit more time making my decision and so on and so forth. But that was definitely true. 
probably still is to some extent, right? I mean, Oz, who, who, you know, who wouldn't prefer to have at least somebody based down here in Australia? And I think the key is somebody. I don't expect there to be a complete replication of the UK company or US company here in Australia, but I, I would love there to be, you know, a couple of key people. I'd love there to be a support person that works in my hours. Uh, you, yeah, you can run your 24-7 support desks in the US and so on and so forth, but there's just always cultural differences and challenges, even between companies as friendly as US and Australia and UK. There's still cultural differences and challenges. So having somebody that's based here in Australia is, is useful from a support perspective. That's not a massive outlay. You know, like we work and all that sort of stuff, and half of Sydney is owned by WeWork these days. <laughs> you can open up an office with three desks. So I want a sales guy here. You know, I really do want a sales guy here because the role of the salesperson is changing. They're no longer just the guy that takes me out for a beer at the start of the deal and at the end of the deal and mm. you know, offers me the contract and helps me to sign it. You know, they're now becoming more sort of solutions-based salespeople where, you know, the customer success and sales is starting to become blurred, the line between the two. So I want someone like that down here that's a little bit kind of like is able to do my sales but is also able to help me with the adoption of my product and usage of it. And I want someone in support. It's two people. That's all I really need. And I think there's still an advantage to doing that. However, yeah, I think overall companies are just becoming more comfortable with dealing with overseas companies. So I think, yeah, you can, you can, you know, and that's shown by a lot of these AI companies. If most law firms down here in Australia use one of three or four AI platforms that I'm talking about, you, you know, your, your carers and things. None of those guys have an office here in Australia, mm. but all, most law firms have purchased it. And they're quite complex products. They're not a simple product. Yeah. It's not like a document comparison tool that I'm, that I'm buying from Platera. It's a complex product that requires me to learn and, and use. And, you know, it's complex billing and, and it's just complex. And they're buying them quite comfortably, you know, from overseas companies. So, yeah, I think it's changing a little bit. Yeah, perfect. And I'm conscious of your time. So thank you so much, too, for, for your time. Appreciate it. Um, other than listing your LinkedIn profile, any other way people can get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter or any other social media? Uh, social media? Who does that? Um, <laughs> no, look, <laughs> go through LinkedIn. That's the best yeah. one. And yeah, happy to, happy to connect elsewhere from there on. Awesome. Thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. Good on you, buddy. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.